Hello everybody and welcome to this new season of the Hidden Power podcast with Ed Straw uh, Hi. and with me, Philip Tottenham. Hello. We're continuing, of course, the pre-flight checklist that we've been working our way through since January, the 26 principles that Ed and his co-author have outlined that will see us through and to the far side of the climate emergency. But a year or nearly a year has passed since we set out this project. Actually, the first episode went out October the 10th, and that was series one, which is really about proving the concepts of systems thinking. And again, Ed, do you think you can give us a brief definition for any new listeners as to what we're talking about when we talk about systems thinking? I think the best one is thinking about your thinking. So when you say something or when you think about about something, what is it that underlies why you're thinking that? You know, That's so- absolutely true. But I think another, another thing you've often said is this thinking in the round, you know, looking at the, yeah. the whole system, thinking not just of what, for example, a situation of concern or a problem appears to be, but looking at it within its context. because With, are- Within its context and looking at it from different angles, looking at it in the various influences that there are upon it. And again, we'll come on to, you know, things like levelling up, you know, what, hmm. what, does it, what does that mean? How does it work? What, what's actually going to have the biggest impact on that if you're going to have impact at all? Um, right. And of course, why we're talking about systems thinking, or at least why I find myself very interested in systems thinking, is because it's been picked up by these global organizations like the UN, the WHO, the OECD, uh, as being really a, a significant hope for the future, a significant way of thinking to bring yeah. us through the climate emergency and out the other side in a state of comfort. Exactly. And I mean, it's very apparent that all, all of the mainly systematic thinking that's gone on to date has simply got us to the mess that we're now in. And we definitely need a different way of looking at the world if we've got mm. a chance of saving it for that's a reasonable... Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that brings us very neatly to our points, which we I think there's a lot to talk about today, so we need to motor through these. First up, the recent intergovernmental panel on climate change forecast. And I suppose one key change, I think, is their shift from talking about human-induced climate change as a possibility or something a bit vague to being completely unambiguous about the link between human activity and the uh, climate emergencies. Mm. What in particular did you... Uh, what struck you about it? Several things. I, th- I think the first thing is that all these forecasts that we've had, particularly since the Rio summit in 1992, when world leaders first started talking about seriously climate change and what are we going to do about it, all of the forecasts, so that often from time to time, all they're wrong or they're too pessimistic or they're too this. Well, actually, if you go back and look at those forecasts, yeah, they were wrong because their worst case scenario was not worse enough. So mm. in other words, the rate of degradation, the, the rate of global warming, the rate of climate change has exceeded their worst case forecasts. And now the IPCC are saying, look, world, 
unless you get your act together seriously and get control of particularly CO2 emissions in relation to the climate, within the next five years, then we cross this point at Mm -hmm. which then two degrees global warming becomes inevitable. And actually, the longer you hang around, then it's actually three degrees. And you look at that and you look at, for example, the maps that have been produced of flooding in Britain. Right. So this is the the, the cryosphere, so-called the melting ice caps. Exactly. Um, And by 2050, you look at the number of places that are going to be uh, flooded, including, you know, whole hmm. chunks of London, whole chunks of the coast, whole chunks of uh, the coast indeed submerged. And then you turn around and you say, well, okay, we better get on and build flood defences against sea rise. And you think about the enormous... So this enormous uh, array of things that are triggered by this are now, as we speak, really coming to fruition. And indeed, you know, I have a neighbour who's a scientist that does work on, well, on various marine uh, and submarine phenomena. But one thing he's been noting recently is that the predicted shifts in the Gulf Stream that directly impact our climate in the British Isles uh, are now being observed. So the, you may have seen these maps of the meanders, that they're called, that, that flow off from South Carolina uh, across the Atlantic Ocean towards us and, and determine our weather patterns, that these are now no longer sort of wheeling towards us, but are wheeling uh, much further north and, and rather missing us. Mm. And this will impact agriculture in the UK this year, next year, and immediately. So we ought to be scared, uh, very mm. scared. And we ought to be triggering really, really serious, sustained action, political action, and us as citizens demanding political action. That well, this- And and we're seeing action, regardless of it being political, you know, as the war in Syria has been caused by ultimately by collapse of agriculture due to climate change. Now we're seeing migration within the US and within Canada due to climate change. So people who escaped the pandemic to, you know, the cities to go and live Mm. in places like Boulder, Colorado, Mm. are now fleeing the fire season in places like Boulder, Colorado, or the extreme heat events in Canada that we've seen this year. So these are first world climate refugees. And I mean, a lot of people will then go, oh, well, you know, that's the US and that's Canada and that's Syria and Mm. that's Morocco and that's Australia and so on. Well, (laughs) all I can say is this is all coming to a place close to you very soon. If you, I don't know whether we talked about this, the Rhonda Valleys have now had three big, in South Wales, three big floods within this year. And they went round and asked opinions about climate change before those floods. You know, is it, does it matter? Do we need to do something about it? And they asked them after the floods. And, you know, surprise, surprise, loads more people now think mm. that climate change is a big problem. And well, so that, that's our, our next point of discussion. We're getting into COP26. This is the climate conference, mm. uh, intergovernmental conference due in October uh, in Glasgow. Mm. And apparently Boris Johnson is hopeful of making great political hay out of this. 
mm. and it may be his undoing, I suppose, is the, the, these are the risks and the opportunities from his point of view. But what, from the standpoint of fixing any of these uh, forecasted disasters, mm. uh, what, mm. what are the opportunities at, at COP26 as you see them? Well, all history says that these climate summits and indeed a lot of other summits are in practice soap operas so you know there'll be lots of will they won't they sign an agreement agree this agree that agree the other um at the event itself there'll there'll be loads of spin and loads of media coverage then you'll have the whole media circus focusing on all these world leaders you know in glasgow Mm -hmm. to sort the climate and then that in itself will be a so you know will they won't they get to an agreement Mm -hmm. at the end of the day and there'll be some sort of agreement and then how much will actually change you know the following day will the biosphere breathe a sigh of relief and say well done world you've started to reduce the amount of pollution that you've been chucking at me for all of these years the answer is history says absolutely not there'll be lots of posturing and we will continue with the period of environmental history that I think was encapsulated by Bush before the 1992 Rio summit when he said the American way of living is not up for negotiation period. Mm. In in other words, we're going to go on consuming, we're going to go on extracting, we're going to go on polluting because the American way of living is not up for negotiation. Uh, the biosphere, of course, doesn't negotiate. Sure. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I'm I'm picking up on your your exuberant pessimism. Um, however, I do wonder: are there any opportunities that this conference represents in, in a positive sense from the standpoint of of the biosphere? Well, you could hit the panic button, which is what the IPCC have said. Code red. We're talking That's about true, this. Yes. Is- really really serious you could hit the panic button and say okay as of tomorrow no new coal-fired power stations as of tomorrow we're going to cease deforestation of mature forests everywhere Mm. in the world as of tomorrow we're going to shift start shifting but start shifting fast agriculture from the highly carbon producing in essence Mm. uh, methods of modern farming to regenerative farming which we know can feed the world these these things are probably not going to happen no so what good things do you think could happen in reality i mean my hope is at least that sense of panic will filter through to the more receptive minds and hopefully that they will there will be some sense of concerted action even if it's limited you know to the context of the pantomime it's an interesting one i mean they'll go on about electric cars and all of that stuff which which, you know maybe i mean in the long term probably a good thing has a bit of an effect but there'll be sort of lots of tokenism around Mm. like that um but in terms of actually, you know, hard action, they are so trapped in the political, financial, economic systems in which they operate. And of course, a lot of them are trapped, as we'll talk about no doubt more, by uh, preferential lobbying and the power of business over politics. 
And if you think about it, actually, there is one thing that they could do, which would make the biggest difference. The most significant thing that could happen is that we do bring the biosphere into the centre of the government's model, Mm. such that every decision that's now taken has to be in accordance with the needs of the biosphere, which is also our needs, of course. And therefore, I think the way you're discussing this, that this is something that is sort of gradually happening, whether politicians like it or not, as in they're having to confront flooding and wildfires and everything Mm. else in the politically powerful first world countries. So it's Mm. completely unfair from the standpoint of countries that have been dealing with this for years. But at the same time, there is hope that they will not escape and therefore must take action. Now, you mentioned a minute ago political lobbying. And I was thinking, of course, the tragic and I mean, that's not even doesn't cover it. The awful images that we've seen of Afghanistan mm. and just how bewildered and helpless I've, I'm sure everybody has felt in learning about what, what's happened there. I think we can get away from the discussion of whether Biden's actions were right, whether the way they came out were right or wrong. I mean, it's it, what happened happened and it's awful. But the whole war... I mean, is it a, whatever happened in Afghanistan, mm. regardless of its effects, has been very profitable for certain interests, just as yeah. the Iraq war was, just as the wars in former Yugoslavia were. Mm. And I wondered, I mean, how does that translate into, into money? Well, you know, so, I mean, just a couple of precursors. One, history says uh, time and time again, any foreign power that gets involved in the Middle East for the last goodness knows how long always makes the situation worse. So that's point one. Point two is it seemed to be a pretty inept withdrawal. But um, the other point three then as a precursor is remember hypernormalisation, and Curtis's work in relation to Libya, where Libya was framed by US and then the world's press as a bad thing and Gaddafi. And then it suited their politics to frame him as a good thing, and then he's framed as a bad thing. Currently, Afghanistan is framed by the world's media as a bad thing. Goodness knows what's the reality, because these days you just get stories and stories filed to fit the narrative, and the narrative is the Taliban are awful and they're doing all these awful things, and they may well be awful. Who knows? But you can be damn sure that the world's press will not be doing reporting. Mm. Right. So all of that is a precursor then. So, you know, why are they there? Well, the, the statistics I read were that the US has spent $3 trillion in Afghanistan in just to, to get a handle on three trillion dollars that's that three thousand billion yeah so yeah yeah three million million like yes but of that three trillion 80 percent has gone back to US companies and 80 percent 80 percent so this notion so that's more than two trillion 
yeah. more than two so, trillion so through motion. Actually, you know, we've been piling all this money in to help the Afghanis and to you know establish infrastructure and democracy and all the rest of it. Actually, this is about feeding U.S. corporates, the, the ones that make the weapons, the ones that makes the software. So the, the certainly in, in, in Bosnia, the big one was, uh, and indeed in, in Iraq, I believe, was Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton. Yeah, and, and, exactly, and, yeah and, and many others. So actually, what's the point of the 20-year war by the U.S.? Well, it certainly has kept uh, a lot of U.S companies very happy it's kept them very profitable of course then they are funding candidates they're funding presidential elections they're funding and in essence controlling a lot of the politics in congress mm. so you've got this virtuous circle of oh, money circle, yeah. yeah and the afghanis happen to be on the end of this and there was a fantastic piece in the week about one of the military personnel flying a plane in Afghanistan and he would go round and round in this plane. They would be monitoring conversations, picking up that they were going to uh, plant um, an explosive device X, Y or Z, telling the troops on the ground and, and they would go and kill people. He was basically saying what happened is, you know, they'd liberate a village and then three years later they'd go back and liberate the same village. So the whole process was circular uh, involved a lot of death and absolutely got nowhere. So, it, and in it's, terms of the war on terror, I think has been a pretty astounding own goal. Well, the uh, other point that was coming out of that, which I read somewhere else, oh yes, the LRB in relation to the CIA and their external ops, uh, whatever they, you know, where they, where they go and set up. Uh, in order to destabilize a particular country, you get together a band of exiles, you get together various mercenaries, you train them in a neighboring country, you arm them to death, uh, you then launch them into the country in order to destabilize it. This, this example was Syria. They then get uh, wiped out by and large. Of course, there's no uh, death for Americans because all mm. they've done is set them up and teed them off. So it's a very low risk for Americans. One of the outcomes of this particular early intervention in Syria was the establishment of ISIS because mm. it stimulated that response. So the world then becomes a vehicle for U.S. corporate power. Uh, US. It's sort of commercialized policing as racketeering in a sense. Yes, yes, policing as racketeering. Okay, so that touches on one of our abiding themes, which is this question of political lobbying and just how deep in our culture and subconscious it runs. One person who's been attempting to overturn the system, someone I sort of think of as being temperamentally petulant and intellectually suspect and someone we've talked about before is Dominic Cummings but you are very clear in your mind that he is as it were on our side and I wanted you to make the case for why I need to think more about Dominic Cummings um, when I hope to consign him to the archive. (laughs) I saw at various people's recommendations an interview that he did with Laura Kunisberg, is it? She's a BBC, yeah. BBC interviewer of some shape or form. 
inevitably being part of the London media establishment, she had no grasp of what he was trying to talk about, which is systems of governing and why it is all such a mess. So she kept focusing on what time of day he went to Barnard Castle and whether he should have done. London journalists typically are frustrated prosecuting counsel. Sure, um, but Cummings yeah. had an agenda for that conversation. So what was that? Cummings is absolutely clear that the reason, first of all, he got involved with Johnson was that there was a possibility that he could use his position, along with people like Gove, Mm. to change the system of governing and at least make it a bit better, if not a lot better. He retired hurt. He failed. His comment, really overriding comment, is that the big problem is that we have these two legacy political parties, Labour and Conservative, which act as gatekeepers to Mm. system of governing, gatekeepers to change. So, I mean, that's almost literally a kind of divide and rule, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And as long as these obstacles are there, it's going to be very difficult to get in and change what's going on in the system. It, it, it's a logjam. I mean, we, we've talked about this a lot. Mm. But he is now trying to apply his devious mind as to how you can influence and change and break up those gatekeepers. So, mm. you know, best of luck to him because that is highly highly needed you've talked before about how systems ensure their own survival there's a kind of a almost biological element to to these political systems they have immune systems that run around and suppress things right so to bring people out of their kind of political bubbles or their systemic bubbles and to see what is possible is the challenge and i suppose you know, we've heard recently of this great cabinet reshuffle. I mean, even saying that makes me feel tired. But the, one of the hilarious titles for new ministers is the Secretary of State for Leveling Up mm. Housing and Communities. It's so absurd. I don't even know where to start talking about it. But mm. this is where Johnson's kind of torpedo in the shape of Michael Gove is supposed to sort of go in and make this mm. thing happen, try to bring. Mm meaning to this increasingly mm. uh, empty term leveling up mm. um what, what are you like <clears throat> is there is anything going to happen gove has talked about systemic things before I, oh I, yes i mean gove you know has the, there's a speech i think we put in the show notes some time ago that gove gave at chatham house i think on systems of governing i mean it was, it was fantastic it was you know we we could have used it in one of our systems thinking lectures and so mm. on. It, it was a really good piece. But he is one of these curiosities. No one quite knows what motivates him. Where on the one hand, yeah, can talk a fantastic game, but actually then descends into, you know, the level of the day to day. Gove did some really good work so long as some of it at least gets translated into action gove did some really good work at defra in terms of changing the whole relationship and just to remind listeners what what is defra environment food rural affairs so it's right. the one that deals with agriculture changing the way we see and use land from something mm-hmm. that's just there to produce food 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 at the cheapest possible cost 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 
to something that we understand is vital for our lives and therefore mm. the good of the land and environment. So he's done all of that great and is perfectly capable of doing good things. But now we've got this levelling up thing. Well, I think we see a government that is essentially reduced to sloganising. And as mm. someone put it in Cymru Nation, if you keep on talking to the mirror and so you can just see Johnson in the morning go leveling up, leveling up, leveling up, you know, with his cheeks sort of wobbling, mm. um, that this will actually happen. And that was exactly the case with the Northern Powerhouse. They talked about it. That was Osborne particularly, wasn't it? They talked about it, talked about it, talked about it in their minds, so long as they've talked about it enough and then the news agenda has moved on, then it's happened. Of course, nothing has happened in terms of the Northern Powerhouse. There isn't now, you know, some really seriously modern rail infrastructure, new industries, decent powers for Andy Burnham, the executive mayor, to actually get on and do stuff locally. So the Northern Powerhouse is simply an empty phrase. Levelling up, what chance have they got of levelling up? Well, you know, step one would be to give powers, proper powers, executive mayors, funding, uh, accountability, transparency to local government to get on and do things because that's the level at which levelling up is going to occur. So it's just a slogan. In about a year's time, you know, that would be declared completed. And of course, the press, who are complicit essentially in all of this farce because they themselves are just after headlines so in about a year's time leveling up will have been done and there we are all of those poor people will still be poor but you know politically for them for your average conservative party member they'll feel good about it they feel like they've got through the hoop okay they've done done something so i i'm always um i'm always excited to extract any grain of optimism (laughs) from you um (laughs) sorry Bad no, no, it's good. I, I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy the bracing flood of pessimism. You know, the optimism point is that does there come a point at which the citizens, us, people, people down the road, wise up to the con, to the corruption, simply to the fact that this is a government We've been socialised to actually expect it to foul up. But at what point does it wise up and go, well, you don't need to have a government that fouls up this badly and is this inept and that it gets wiped out at the next But what you're talking about is really a, a, a question of political culture at the ground yeah. level, which I suppose is what yeah. systems thinking and practice and, is. Well, in, in the sense that you're trying to get people to think in terms of reality and to deal with your reality and go, no, that's a shit show. This morning there was a poll out about, and it was a poll across Britain, about how different parts of the union, as we call mm. it, have dealt with COVID. And across the board in Britain, people were saying that they thought that Wales, I can't remember where Scotland, but Wales had dealt with the pandemic and the lockdowns much better than the UK government. 
And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So it's interesting in several counts. One is that, of course, because of the pandemic, uh, Mark Drakeford and the Welsh Assembly have actually got some airtime mm. in the London news media. Which and is it's listen, something of a rarity, really. Uh, a complete rarity. Uh, uh, and once you listen to Drakeford, I'm, I'm you know, the, this person isn't a perfect person operating in a perfect system, but he is at least grounded. Mm. Um, and the way in which he comes across and the sense with which he talks rather than, you know, getting into all this sort of Churchillian rhetoric. So people are going, yeah, that was better. Now, this emphasises the point about having more than one government in any particular place yes, because yeah, you get competition. And yes, if yeah, all yeah. we'd had... Uh, and I've said this, we've said this a number of times, if all we'd had was simply Westminster Whitehall, then that would be the only thing we could look well, at. This is before. interesting because, you know, we started this section with um, the Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, which mm. used to be called the Secretary of State for Housing Communities and Local Government. Oh, you know, where do you start? So you, you've got, we're, we're doing levelling up by sloganising and talking about mm. it. Actually, to do levelling up, you need proper, real local government, which is not necessarily what we have now, uh, but proper, real local government, engaged, democratically engaged, accountable, transparent, uh, funded, executive mayor. I mean, I, I sort of feel like we're, we're getting close to this idea of governance as opposed to government and governance yeah. as being what I want to do when I want to do it as a sort of what's going on in my environment and community and, you know, with my friends and this kind of thing. Yeah. And the one element of this that comes up in systems thinking is this question of engage, deliberate, decide, as opposed to decide, announce, defend, which is, of course, the classic yes. way that governments sort of produce policies, piss everybody off, and then try yeah. and fight them off. Yeah. Uh, whereas the reverse view the engaged deliberate decide is just about saying well what do we all want have mm. a chat about it deliberate and then come to a conclusion and yeah. this model i think you were saying has been quite popular it's been one of the more effective um yeah well as that, that ray that your co-author ray and mm. students have found that this has been working quite mm. well so i wondered the, if you had anything to flesh that out with so ray teaches all the time on the Applied Systems Thinking in Practice program at the Open University. He's lecturing around the world, well, via Zoom at present, and talking to people who have a particular interest in systems thinking and maybe a particular practice in systems thinking. And he's bringing up all sorts of things. One of the points he made was that one of the things that really resonates with people from our book is this dad to Ed. And as you say, the shift in way you take decisions, the shift in the way in which those decisions are implemented and, and the complete difference between the representative democracy, you know, vote once every four years and then go away and, you know, we'll get we'll get back to and forth. Yeah, I mean, the way, the way you frame it, it does sound sort of like an oxymoron. The representative democracy precisely is really not representative. It's extraordinarily unrepresentative in first past the post, but even in proportional representation, yeah, it's more representative. But I mean, the notion that 
the democracy occurs once every four years is absurd. So the notion of a participative representative democracy where you get people involved and engaged in those decisions that they want to be engaged and involved in. For example, how would we go about levelling up if we were to do some levelling up in St Albans for the sake mm. of argument? And so, you know, what does that mean and, and what are you going to do about it? If you then go through to any decision about a road or about a flood defence or about closing a hospital or opening a hospital or closing a school or opening a school. We had the example that we covered earlier in the series on the library at Shepton Mallet. Mm, How can we develop this with people and get beyond this notion that things have to be done by the local authority? But also that was about a reframing of value, wasn't it? From it being just a financial question to to looking at what the value was to the community and taking, you know, managing to bring about a communitarian approach to keeping this valuable resource Uh, going in a way that works and you can't do if you're just deciding because the pressures on local government typically are financial we've got to save money so they go off and save money and they close things you know fantastic Mm -hmm. wasn't that brilliant whereas yeah if you widen the frame you bring in multiple perspectives you'll find enormous skills and abilities in any community and you apply those to a particular problem then yeah, all sorts of things can get improved. And, so, and that's really about volunteer-led organisation in a way, isn't it? Civil society saying, okay, we're going to step up and we're going to do stuff. And mm. yeah, that that's you and me and, you know, Rachel down the road and so on and so forth, getting together and saying, okay, let's see what we can do. And mm. I think that's something else that I would emphasize at this point, that people are being more active in Mm. going, well, look, government is just a disaster. Well, this presumably has been brought to a head by the last couple of years of of pandemic. So we are going to have to fix this ourselves. And back to the the Dockerville thing that he noticed in one of as one of the great strengths of American society and American democracy, the art of association. Yes, yeah, people yeah. getting together. It's visible, isn't it? I mean, I, I sort of find that you know, as you as you mentioned that, I find myself thinking of recent conversations with friends mm. that you know are sort of steering towards local organisation and mm. you know trying to get things happening. I think we need to have a quick orientation yes. on on where we're going. So we've okay. had. Series one, where we looked at how various people were employing systems thinking, including Eileen Monroe and Julian Corner uh, in mm. the child protection, the world of child protection and uh, philanthropic giving, respectively. Mm. And then we got into pre-flight checklist, which is our second kind of series. It's more than a series; it's a, a series of series, really. Yeah. Um, and. I was thinking about that this morning and thinking it's really been like layers of an onion, hasn't it? Where we've gone, looked at each of the sort of in turn of the prerequisites to human flourishing. And that yeah. started out with biosphere and people. That's the point of all of this is is the 
kind of flourishing of people and the flourishing of the biosphere. And mm. then that is a prerequisite, you know, that as a purpose is a prerequisite to our democracy and subsidiarity. So this is about, yeah. you know, well, who actually has power, really, which is the people, and how actually is democracy, this ideal of democracy going to work? Yeah. And of course, this in turn both supports and rests on truth and reality you know what you know what and this again is very much systems thinking in practice you know what is my media bubble and how am i engaging with people around me and truth and reality rest very much on the separation of powers so you don't have a kind of a media bubble controlled by a central government so that's where we got into all that and then we got into government itself and on the back of all of that we're now looking at the sort of the core, in a sense, of our engagement with the biosphere. So the biosphere is the central partner of our government systems. This is our life support system without which we literally can't breathe. You know, oxygen would run out. So we need a functioning biosphere. Yeah. And from the standpoint of that biosphere, it's in a sense, if it has awareness, is aware of humanity, primarily in industrial terms. And the statistic that is often bandied around, and quite rightly, is that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. Yeah. And of course, the UK has 3.5 million companies, many of them doing great work. But whatever... You, about global emissions. This is before we talk about deforestation, palm oil, other biodiversity destruction, mining at the bottom of seabeds, or mining in general, uh, and other extraction. So mm. it's striking to me that, you know, no matter what your political persuasion is, if you're willing to engage with reality and you want to avoid the worst implications of the current climate and biodiversity crisis, which, you know, just as a reminder, include the kinds of agricultural collapse that fed into the war in Syria, the mass migrations, mm. not only, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, but now in the US and Canada as well. Yeah. We need to talk about companies. That's yeah, the absolutely. long and short of it. This is the core yeah. of all of that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's okay. a bit of a rant, but I don't know So absolutely. So we've set in the, in the previous 21 principles, we built up the system, the system of governing, the governance model, all of the various artifacts and instruments, the institutions that are needed to get this thing to happen. Now, how do we want companies to behave? And the very powerful, very important. And let's, in a way, not knock them because these are companies, for example, that have just shot off and produced a vaccine uh, mm. and vaccines at a great rate of knots and are doing all sorts of useful things uh, for us. And of course, these companies wouldn't exist unless we bought their products. So, yeah, they're indeed sort of their, their, their shares. They, you know, a company like Shell, for example, which powers people in their day to day activities in their cars, is supporting a massive amount of people through their so called shareholder value. I don't know if they still do this, but I know that historically they increased their dividend 
year on year. So that made yeah. it a very sort of safe thing for for people to support people to invest on. in and so on. Again, I, I don't frame this in terms of companies and company executives, good, bad, hmm. whatever. It's like it's like farmers; they do what they do because of the system that they're in. So, how are we going to change? their behavior and get them to do different stuff. Well, we've already put in at the top line, the biosphere is at the center of the governance model. And then that would translate into company law. And that would mean that all companies would have to place the biosphere at the center of the governance model. And hence, you know, we get to principle 22, companies shall act in the interest of people in the biosphere. 23, end-to-end producer responsibility. 24, company duty to inform. 25, systemic inquiry into any new technologies and 26, transitioning companies from polluting to non-polluting activities will support them. Mm. Um, So those are what we have to look forward to in terms of creating a framework for companies to continue, but to continue within the context of us all surviving. Well, and I think, again, the point of activity is, in a sense, what the governance models are about. You know, what are the rails on which we're traveling and what are we trying to do? Yeah. And so this is neatly encapsulated in Principle 22. Which is, companies shall act in the interests of people and the biosphere. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Yes, indeed, as with all of them. Okay, great. Ed and listeners, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you next week. Brilliant. I look forward to it. I hope you do. Me too. Yeah, very much so.